Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to an extra edition of the SITREP podcast. Japan is one of the world's very biggest economic powers, but for decades it deliberately did not make itself into a top-tier military power because of its history in World War II. However, the world has changed, and so has Japan's mindset. It is investing billions into modern high-tech armed forces, which will be able to strike outside of Japanese territory and will make it the world's third largest defence spender. Tokyo's five-year plan involves doubling the proportion of national income spent on defence and also more partnerships. The UK's done deals that bring Japan into its sixth-generation fighter jet programme and allow British troops to operate on Japanese soil. It's all driven by rising tensions with China and North Korea. So, how much of a military player is Japan right now, and how much of a player could it become? I've been talking to Dr. Chris Hughes, author of Japan as a Global Military Power, and he's Professor of Japanese Studies and International Politics at the University of Warwick. Chris, great to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, Let's start by looking at how capable Japan's armed forces are right now. Can you give us a sense of the people and the equipment they have? Sure, yeah. Um, So Japan's self-defence forces, which is really a a euphemism for the Japanese military, um, it's roughly a quarter of a million personnel, uh, and it's divided into three services. So there's a ground self-defence force, which is the largest part, which is about 150 160,000 personnel. Uh, then there's an air self-defence force, about 50,000. And then there's a, a maritime self-defence force, which is getting about 50,000, 60,000 or so. So it gives you about a quarter of a million um, standing standing army. Um, they're pretty capable forces. Um, Japan has had in the past many constraints on what it can do in terms of how it utilises its military for national security ends and some of the equipment that it can procure. But Certainly Japan quietly, both independently, but also working with the United States over the last you know, 50, 60, 70 years has been building up its military capabilities. So the ground self-defense forces are, you know, I say large and substantial, lots of, lots of tanks and so on and artillery because originally they were designed to stop a Soviet invasion of the north of Japan. But increasingly they've shifted southwards and they've become lighter and more mobile. Uh, and they, Japan has started to establish its own sort of Marine Corps and it's really looking to defend its southwestern islands against um, Chinese incursions. Uh, the Air Self-Defence Force is, again, very become very capable. Uh, used to be, I think, the most powerful um, Asian air force, uh, obviously barring the um, US deployments in the Asia-Pacific. China's become much more capable, but Japan has responded uh, through building up what's called kind of fifth-generation fighter planes, so stealth fighter planes, particularly things like the F-35, which is a very, very capable new fighter uh, and Japan mm. actually has the second largest inventory, or will do soon, of F-35s in the world after the United States. So, you know, pretty substantial. And then the Maritime Self-Defence Force, um, Japan's always maintained a very capable navy as a as an island nation. Um, around 50 destroyers or so, um, and around 20 submarines. Uh, and also what are called helicopter destroyers, but in fact are really he- light helicopter carriers and they've been converted recently to carry F-35. So Japan is now back into maritime aviation and its own carriers. So it's a it's a very, you know, pretty substantial force, very well trained, very capable, um, very professional. Uh, and Japan is doing more since 2022. It's investing in all kinds of other 
capabilities. Certainly Japan is starting to move into things like what it calls counter-strike uh, to be able to strike um, an opponent's territory if Japan is threatened by ballistic missile defences and so on. So it, it, it's, it's, it's engaged in a big build-up. Yeah, I'll ask you a little bit more about Counter-Strike in a moment. Uh, can you just tell us how many F-35s Japan has now and will have? And also tell me a little bit more about the tanks. Uh, so I think um, I'll have to, I would have to check my numbers, but I think it will have about 120 or so eventually. Um, which is a you know um, a large large inventory. Uh, I think the UK has got probably thirty five Bs. Will have maybe forty or something. So it's you know it's 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 large. Um, alongside that, obviously, it has a lot of F 15s as well, um, which are still capable aircraft, and it's looking to, it's looking to replace its F 15s with this new fighter program that it's developing with the UK. So the Global Combat Air Program. So um, you know it's it's starting to go not just fifth generation but sixth generation. Uh, in terms of tanks, yes, I mean um, Japan has a, a pretty c- capable tank force. I think it's about three hundred tanks or so, but it has scaled that down since the Cold War, uh, and it's started to invest in lighter tanks and more mobile vehicles because, again, it's less worried about a Soviet invasion of its northern islands, uh, and it's much more interested in actually having a lighter uh, forces that it can deploy to the southwestern islands, to Okinawa, to some of the islands that are close to Taiwan, and. They need to just be more mobile, both you know, air mobile, uh, sea mobile, um, and it's investing in things like uh, amphibious vehicles as well. So it's creating a kind of a lighter force, a little bit more like a marine, a little bit more like the sort of US marine type force. You mentioned earlier that Japan is developing its counter-strike capability. Can you tell me a bit more about that? What Japan calls counter-strike is really uh, retaliatory missile strikes. It's a kind of, again, it's coded Japanese language. So Japan decided in 2022 that it, it would actually exercise this right. So what it's been doing is building up counter-strike or what it calls standoff capabilities. So it's, it's a whole range of um, cruise missiles, uh, which can be um, ground-launched by the self-defence forces or sea-launched. So it's, it's buying Tomahawk missiles from the United States. It'll have about 400 of those by 2026 to be launched from its destroyers. But also it's got a lot of uh, long-range um uh, anti-ship missiles, anti-ground missiles that the air self-defense forces will use as well. So, um, you know, it's 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 a kind of whole panoply of, of, of cruise missiles. Uh, and also, in addition, Japan wants to develop hypersonic missiles as well, both hypersonic kind of cruise missiles, but also hypersonic glide vehicles. So the idea is essentially that if, um, because Japan feels threatened by North Korean missiles, but also Chinese missiles in the event of a Taiwan contingency, uh, that Japan is not just going to sit there um, and sort of absorb those strikes. I mean, it, it wanted it has got very effective ballistic missile defence systems, but it feels that those are still no longer really adequate given the the range of missiles and the number of missiles that it faces. So therefore, it now needs to have its own deterrent function to hit back uh, at China and North Korea if it's threatened. So that's the that's what Japan means by counter strike. So for the first time. In the post-war period, Japan can now actually has the capability to strike onto the East Asian continent with its missile capabilities. At the moment, um, how are Japan's armed forces structured and, and what can they actually do? I mean, it's a really interesting question. So obviously, I think there are two kind of big questions that um, observers of Japan's military are thinking about. So one is, I think, um, obviously, J- Japan's self-defense forces are not very well tested in combat. In fact, they're not tested at all uh, in combat, even though Japan has, um, you know, in, in the post-Cold War period has dispatched the JSDF overseas for 
peacekeeping missions, humanitarian um, support missions uh, to support the United States coalition, that coalition in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's all been non-combat logistical support. So Japan's lo- learned a lot about working in multinational co- coalitions, but it hasn't actually used force. So um, a lot of people wonder about, you know, how well the self-defense forces would would stand up in a you know in, in in a fight. But having said that, many of the other Asian militaries, even the Chinese military, hasn't used force for many many years. So um, that's an interesting question. And I think the other really key question that the Japanese want to are working really hard on is the the jointness uh, of the three self-defense forces. So traditionally, they've rather been stovepiped, and they've tended to do their own kind of thing. So you know they've looked after their own domains, uh, but they haven't worked jointly together. Uh, so j- the Japanese military defense and the Japanese self-defense forces are working really hard trying to overcome that. And they're talking about a, a joint dynamic defense force, a multi-domain uh, defense force, um, where the three services work together more effectively. And they try and break down some of those kind of institutional barriers, but also they also bring in cyber and space domains and electromagnetic domains. So Japan's really trying to get into its own sort of process of defense transformation. So how much bigger will the Japanese forces be in five years' time when they expect to have doubled defence spending? So um, uh, they're not actually going to d- double defence spending. Uh, what they're going to is about 1.6, but they will increase the amount of GDP spent on defence up to 2% because they'll, they'll recalculate using the NATO standard. So um, but okay. there will be a 60% increase in defence. So, so it's, a big, it's a big hike. How much bigger they'll be? I don't think they will be bigger. Um, so, um, you know, as you know, the demographics in Japan are not, you may be aware, are not brilliant. I mean, Japan has a large population, but it has an ageing population. So um, there are less young people who are available to join the armed forces. Uh, and on also, you know, it's not perceived in Japan as the most attractive career. Uh, so what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to work quite hard, I think, to keep uh, really the numbers they've got more or less static um, by, um, you know, um, retaining more st- um, personnel, al- allowing to retire a bit later, trying to get more females into the military, uh, and just generally make it a more attractive career uh, prospect. So their plan isn't to increase the number of personnel, it's actually sort of more to keep it the same. Um, but I think what they will do is they'll probably shift around some numbers between the services, because um, they do have a very large ground self-defence forces. Um, you know, it's, it's like, you know, sometimes three times um, the size of the other individual forces. Um, Japan does need quite a large ground self-defence force, um, especially for things like natural disasters to respond to earthquakes and tsunamis and things. So, um, But probably it's a bit too big. Uh, and as you say, we, as I said, they're trying to move away from this sort of big force to counter land, big land invasion, and have much more mobile and light forces. So I think what you'll see is a kind of redistribution of forces away from the ground self-defence forces. Uh, and into the maritime and air self-defence forces and try and push numbers that way. And in terms of the perceived threats, is it all about China and North Korea? Uh, yes, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I mean, I think there's a kind of hierarchy of, of threats. Um, so, oh, as I said, during the Cold War, it was the Soviet Union and that sort of you know kind of evaporated. Um, then North Korea uh, emerged because of its ballistic missile programmes, its nuclear programmes. And that's a, you know, that's a major concern for, for Japan. Um, but China has always been the kind of looming uh, problem, you know, on the horizon, and it's become sort of you know, bigger and bigger and closer and closer over the last 20 years or so. So Japan, you know, doesn't tend to use the language of threat overtly, 
uh, about um, uh, other countries. Um, but you know, really, Japan, uh, China has now elbowed its way into the, the sort of top uh, threat category, and then North Korea, and then of course Russia is back somewhat. Um, but I don't think Japan's that concerned about Russia. But it's more about um, Russia's general um, impact on the international order uh, and the international system, and, and sort of. Um, uh, working with China to perhaps make life difficult for Japan in the region. And if there were to be a military conflict between China and Taiwan, mm. could we see a more heavily militarised Japan actually enter into that fight? Yeah, that's 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 a massively important question that everybody is 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 sort of thinking their way through. Um, I think it depends on the scenarios. So obviously, I think Japan, if possible, would like to keep out of a, a Taiwan conflict. Um, um, because it wants to try and maintain, you know, um, stability and good ties with China and so on. So it prefer the status quo. Um, and it has been building up its deterrence capabilities to send a strong signal, uh, both its own deterrence capabilities and its cooperation with the US, to send a strong signal to China so they don't, you know, transgress red lines. If it came to a conflict, um, depends what this conflict looks like. I think it's a full-blown sort of kinetic, you know, uh, shooting war. Uh, I think Japan can't stay out because um, it's going to impact on Japan's security very obviously. Probably China will attack US bases in in in, in Japan, so Japan will be drawn into the conflict. Um, I think what will be more difficult for Japan um, will be if it's a kind of a low-level um, type of conflict, maybe cyber, uh, blockade of Taiwan. Then I think you know um, that will create doubts within the Japanese public about you know, do we need to intervene? Is this really in our interest? But I think the US will push Japan very hard to, at the very least, provide a kind of, you know, logistical and rear area support for the United States. And maybe uh, those ground self-defense forces in the southwestern islands may have to play a role in um, using their missile capability to shut off the straits between Taiwan and, and Japan and, and impede the People's Liberation Navy's movement. So, it depends on the scenario. I think it's a it's just a huge dilemma uh, for Japanese policymakers right now. Do do you get a sense? Have you got a sense of, of how concerned uh, Japan is about the prospect of China making a move on Taiwan? Very concerned. Um, yes, I mean you can see from the rhetoric of Japanese policymakers over the last three or four years, um, lots of public, you know, international statements, declarations, um, particularly with the United States. Uh, particularly in Japan's own defence documents. I mean, they keep saying, you know, we we want to preserve the status quo. You know, nobody should destabilise that. And they're using the language now that, you know, that, I mean, it's always kind of been there, but it's kept, Japan's kept it re relatively sort of quiet. This idea that, you know, there is, um, uh, you know, security and stability in the Taiwan Strait is, a, you know, it's a security concern for Japan. So again, it, they're signalling in their own slightly Japanese oblique way that they are really, really worried. And they're doing it also, as I say, substantively through the way that they're planning their defence and the way they're working with the Americans to kind of integrate and mirror the sorts of capabilities that the United States has got in the region. And Japan's building the same ones so that they can work really closely together. So I think China is clearly picking up on these signals or that's the Japanese hope. And what about direct threats to Japan itself? Uh, how real are they? Um, I think quite limited. I mean, well, it depends. So um, again, you know, the threat used to be from Russia. I think, you know, Russia still could threaten Japan's northern territories, I suppose, but uh, uh, sort of Russia, but I, I think it's very unlikely. Um, North Korea, yes. I mean, Japan is very worried about the ballistic missiles uh, that, you know, North Korea keeps testing. 
Um, I think the Japanese feel relatively confident that um, they have they have missile defenses, and they have you know the ability the US may strike back at North Korea. So I think they probably think that North Korea is really dangerous and irritating, but it's the kind of threat that could probably be contained or deterred. Um, what they're really worried about is definitely China. Um, so obviously, it's, as we talked about, a Taiwan contingency, but also China and Japan have territorial disputes uh, around what's known as the Senkaku and Daoyu Islands in the East China Sea. Um, and you know China is um, putting a lot of pressure uh, around those islands. So lots of incursions, you know, sort of grey zone contingencies, um, you know, using its coast guard, using its civilian um, sort of fishing vessels to sort of try and, if you like, sort of establish a, a Chinese presence around those. Uh, and I think, you know, J Japan is very worried that, you know, um, if Japan lets its guard down, then uh, suddenly, you know, those islands may be seized. So even though they're quite small, um, you know, uninhabited islands, nevertheless, they could lose, Japan could lose its territory. So Japan is really worried about that. And just finally, Chris, um, where do defence agreements between Japan and the UK fit into all of this? Uh, pretty important, actually. Um, so one of the one of the really kind of key, really interesting features of Japanese defence and security policy the last fifteen years, but also I think really accelerating in the last five or six or so, has been um, Japan's looking for more partners out, not just the United States. Obviously, it's been a huge amount of effort into strengthening the US-Japan alliance, but it wants more partners. What it calls more kind of like-minded partners that it can um, uh, engage in the Indo-Pacific region to show that you know Japan is not alone, that China can't have it all its own way, that you know um, others think the same way as Japan and the United States. That's really important. So, you know, the UK has started to show more presence in the Indo-Pacific, uh, but also to you know to to engage in some substantive military projects as well. Um, so you know through joint military exercises. You know, as you know, the UK has a reciprocal access agreement now with Japan to be able to, you know, move militaries back and forwards, share logistics and things like that. Uh, and then, as I, as I mentioned before, the Global Combat Air Program, you know, that's a really important program for Japan to develop a sixth generation fighter and to learn to um, do more defence industrial cooperation with, with other countries. So, you know, Japan sees the UK as a very safe, reliable partner, good US ally. Um, but they have lots of complementary interests, lots of complementary capabilities. Um, so I think actually there's there's a lot of mileage in that in that relationship if it's um, carefully managed. Dr. Chris Hughes, good to speak to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. News, discussions, and analysis. This is Sitrep.